much. If you could turn in your Bibles to the book of Matthew, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 21, and we are in the third part of our series going through uh, this notion of who needs God, really identifying the fact that um, there are a significant portion of our country in specific that have really evaluated the faith they grew up in and found it wanting, that the faith of their childhood was great as a kid, but their questions and their scrutiny just didn't stand up to some of the more um, intellectual theories that they were presented with, whether it was in college or life or, or tragedy struck, and it was something that they found very difficult to um, reconcile the God that they had grown up with. And our encouragement to you, if that's you, because my hope is that here today with all these people, that there's some people here who are still on the fence. Some people here who are still struggling with their faith, struggling with whether or not they, they want to put their trust in this Jesus. And if that's you, I want you to know that this series is aimed at com- communicating with you. That perhaps you walked away from the faith of your childhood prematurely. Perhaps it was the fact that you grew up, but your faith didn't. And uh, you didn't allow, you didn't have a faith that actually could walk in and take what life threw at it once you stepped into adulthood. And so what we've been doing is, because uh, I mean, we're, we're, I'm a Christian, um, and I'm pretty sure you guys were aware of that. But when, what we're doing is we're going to Jesus because I believe Jesus is the answer. And we're going to what he said about himself and what others said about him in Scripture to look and see if this faith that we have in, the, the faith that we have, the, the person that we put our trust in, is he, is he truly the one that we should follow with our whole life? The standing up to the scrutiny that anyone would throw at him, is he the one? And so today in our Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. And so either turn there in your phone or in your actual physical Bible. And if you could please stand with me as we read the Lord's Holy Scripture. And by the way, this passage is being read on every corner of this world by millions and millions of people who've put their trust in Jesus. You are joining not just Manuka Bible Church, not just, not just the United States, not just Christians in this hemisphere. You're joining a global acknowledgement of the fact that the king has come. Let's take a look at uh, verses 1 through 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and, once you will, and, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with a colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken about through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt to the plate and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. 
As we're looking at this, uh, this is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. As we're looking at this, this is one of the uh, passages that um, we have to understand a little bit of cultural context. We talked about this um, last week and the week before that this time frame um, for, for people in Jerusalem was a heightened state of, of ap- just volatility. Um, around the Roman Empire noticed that in the Palestinian area, in the Judean area, around Passover time, when Jews were studying oppression and study, studying the, the, the exodus and the fact that God freed and liberated the God, God's chosen people from oppressors, that they would start to get it in their head that maybe God's going to do that again. And that this Messiah that they had looked forward to, that perhaps Messiah would return, perhaps Elijah is going to be provided for, perhaps the anointed will come and rescue from our own oppression to the Roman Empire. And so what we see happening in this passage is absolutely offensive and in your face to the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire who at this time the terror alert was higher, and so they have more boots on the ground. They've got more centurions out about because they wanted to dispel any riot, any type of gathering of Jews that are going to do anything more than just have a nice little religious ritual. As If they're going to take that religious ritual and take it up a notch into actually going up against Rome or talking against Rome, we're going to quiet that quick. In the midst of this, Jesus pulls this stunt. And this sends messages. First of all, the words that they're saying mean something. The word Hosanna means save now or save us now. And so, so when, when you, if you were in that crowd as Jesus is coming down on the donkey and you see like all these people and everyone is putting down their, their cloaks in front of him and they're putting down palm branches and they're waving palm branches, what they're saying is Hosanna. What are they saying? They're actually saying what? Save now. Save us. Save us now. Deliver us. And they were specific. They weren't speaking about their sins. They were speaking about the Roman Empire. And they're like, save us now. You are the one. God, could you work through this anointed? Could you work through this individual right here to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves? And they're waving palm branches as they're saying Hosanna. And they're putting palm branches down. And I always thought that was the goofiest part of growing up in church life. When, and I, not that we're never going to have palm branches here on Palm Sunday, because again, every year people walk out and go, where were the palm branches? <laughs> palm Sunday. Palm. Don't they stop palms? And I'm like, all right. So pa- <laughs> I don't really do that. But pa- I always thought that was so goofy. Like, what was the deal with handing out palms in, in First Baptist Church Torrance and for people to wave them around? What was that? What did that mean? And for them, this was an expression of we are putting our faith and our trust in a political system that is above and beyond the political system at hand. We're putting that trust in him. When you're waving palm branches, when you're acknowledging this individual, this anointed individual riding on a donkey and saying, save us now, you're making a political statement that was an affront to the Roman Empire and the powers that be. And on top of that, Jesus decides to make sure that the imagery is clear, crystal clear. He's riding on a donkey. And that communicates kingship. Everyone understood that to be kingship. The Roman Empire picked up on the fact that this was what Jesus was saying. So when, he is being, when Jesus is being brought before Pilate and saying he is claiming to be the king of the Jews, they weren't just pulling that out of thin air. They were saying, did you see what took place? He comes down the Mount of Olives. And if you've gone to Israel, either with NBC or with someone else, or you're going next time, you're going to walk this path, the very road, where you walk down from Bethany, Bethpage, and all of a sudden you see the whole city right there. And you go down into that, that valley, and you come on up, and you can see exactly where Jesus would have gone into the temple, into the temple area, to the city area, 
of Jerusalem, and people are freaking out all throughout the city. And so what we're going to be doing today is looking at the question that they were asking, and the question that we're asking to this day. And the question starts with this word. And this is an important word. We're going to get all up in the isness of this, is, this word right here. Is is important. Their question had to do with, well, that's interesting. <laughs> all right, oh, whatever. All right. Their question was very interesting because they're asking, is he someone special? Is he a prophet? Some might have even speculated, is, is Jesus God? And today, 2,000 years later on Palm Sunday, we are asking similar questions in our culture. Is Jesus God? Is he the only way? Is he someone that I should put my trust in in 2017 in spite of the fact that there's some really, really smart people who don't? Is he someone who can actually take away my sin? Well, before we even get into the content of the meat of those questions, we have to start off with the fact that we are asking a question, is, and this, this is problematic, if as opposed to what we're reading that Jesus is the one, he is the Messiah, he is God, if everything is material and materialistic only, there is no God, there is no first cause in creation, there's only what we see and everything's just basically, it's random chance, then this should not happen. Is should not happen. Because when we're formulating a sentence and a question starting with is, or the fact that we're formulating a question at all, we have the capacity of having self-awareness and consciousness. And consciousness and the ability to think is tough to explain scientifically. There is no evidence to understand why we can think. In fact, Darwin philosopher Michael Roos said, why should a bunch of atoms have thinking ability? Why should I, even as I right now, be able to reflect on what I'm doing and why should you, even as you read now, be able to ponder my points, agreeing or disagreeing with pleasure or pain, deciding to refute me or deciding that I'm just not worth the effort? No one, certainly not the Darwinian as such, seems to have any answer to this. The point is that there is no scientific answer. And Michael is speaking from the angle of a scientist who, who, who has a deep appreciation for science. He's simply being honest. And that, I, I, I greatly respect that because that is something that natural selection honestly cannot account for. That consciousness and the ability for us to have self-awareness, the ability to question, explore, and think, we don't know where that came from. We can't, we can't source that. We can't say that in the beginning there was this which led to the ability for all these particles to add up to us to be able to think and ask and question. See, but that, that's where, where Jesus does fit. Where all of a sudden we see what John was saying in John 1.1 when he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the word that John uses in Greek is a really loaded word. It's the word logos. And, and, and the word logos in, in that culture, in that, just in the language, was the logical engine behind an argument. It was, it's where we get the word logic from. You can make an emotional claim. You could say, I just, I just believe in God because I, I, may, I, I want to believe and it makes me feel happy and blah, blah, blah. Great. That's a, that's a, a fantastic emotional argument. But it's not logical. John is saying that there is a logical engine behind the argument for everything. 
He's actually saying that, that we do have a first cause, that there is something that leads to this. If you're trying to make a, a statement or an argument, you want to have reasons, not just blind emotion. You want to have reasons for why you're making this statement. If you're going to argue that instead of going to Red Lobster today as a family, you're going to go fancy and go to Arby's, you got to have reasons. And so you got to have logical engines behind that argument to convince whoever you're talking to. And they can kind of like go, no, thank you. They could walk away from that. But that's that's where we're at. Logos is the logic behind the argument. It tries to persuade an audience using logical arguments and supportive evidence. And J.P. Moreland, who's a scientist and a theologian, he said, um, at the end of the day, you either have in the beginning were particles, or in the beginning was the divine word, logos, the, the word. You, you have either of the two. But if you go with just particles, then all you have is a series of particles becoming more and more complicated particles, just rearranging the particles, but you never get to a place of self-awareness or consciousness. And, and science tells us that. And science is honest about that. You never can get there. You never get to this, this ability to think and ask a question like is from merely particles. But if you start with an infinite mind, who then can then give birth to finite minds, that would make sense. And that's why within the scientific community, this idea of consciousness is one that they want to distance themselves from because it's very difficult to prove scientifically. And that's very important for us to remember. Also, especially because John doesn't simply say logos. He says ha logos, the, the, the definitive article there with the O with the little uh, cool apostrophe above it. He's saying that I'm not just talking about an argument. And I'm not just talking about an, an, a logical statement. I'm talking about the logical statement, the logical movement, the, the actual thing that, that, that is the rationale behind everything else. And John identifies the logical engine behind all arguments to be Jesus, that it's actually Jesus that is the one who is the reason. He is the first start that helps us get to the point where we can actually ask this. But... The question is, who is he? And that is a question that everyone in the city of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago were asking too. The people who were um, having all the fanfare, all of the, the hubbub of, of the palm branches, all the excitement and the political statement, they thought they knew who he was. They thought this Jesus was going to be the one that would liberate them. And Jesus would tell them, I am not going to liberate you in the way that you think that I'm going to liberate you. You want to be freed from this temporal, momentary, oppressive, suffering, unjust world that you live in under the Roman Empire. But I'm going to do far greater than that. I come to liberate you from your sin. And so the question of who is he? Is he? Who is this person? When we start to, to study who Jesus is, we see that Jesus is the visible, physical, walking, talking person of God. He's not, he's not just a prophet, as, as the, they identified. He's the prophet from, from Galilee. He's, he's the Nazarene. No, it, it, it's, a lot of people want to keep Jesus right there. He's a good teacher, everything else. But, but what we see in Scripture is saying, no, Jesus is, in fact, God, which then that's going to cause a lot of us to have pushback. Well, hold on a second. I've got an issue with God. I'm okay with him being a good teacher, someone that I could learn some morality from. I could teach my kids some good, you know, ways to treat other people. But it's a step too far to say that he is God because I have a hard time believing in God. 
As we talked about last week, one of the primary pushbacks to God is how could a good God allow suffering to happen? There were a bunch of Coptic Christians that were just killed within the past 24 hours by militants who came in and killed them. How could a good God allow that on Palm Sunday weekend? How could a good God allow what we saw on the news when we looked at this, the children in Syria who were murdered and poisoned by their government? How could a good God allow suffering to take place? And that has been one of the, a, a primary pushback to God, or even Jesus being God, that many people have had. But before we go there, let's, let's make sure that we understand that suffering is not an argument against God. Suffering isn't an argument against God. It may be an argument against God's goodness or justice, but it's not an argument against God. I've heard it put it this way. Just imagine, like, let's, you know, um, my son Micah, he's playing the drums today, which was super cool. Let's say that you met Micah, you didn't know who I was, and you're having a conversation with Micah. And you're like, well, tell me about your family. And he's like, oh, my family's terrible. My dad, biggest jerk, biggest jerk. He doesn't feed me, he doesn't clothe me. I had to sew all these clothes myself. During the wintertime, he makes me sleep in the snow outside. He's just, he's, he verbally abuses me every single day of my life. You would not say to Micah, oh, your dad doesn't exist. It's clear, the proof is there. Your dad, you don't have a dad. No, you would say, your dad is a jerk. My jerkiness would not be an argument for my lack of existence. It would be an argument for my goodness or my justice, but it would not be an argument for my existence. But we have to ask the question further. This pushback to why, how could a good God allow suffering starts with the, the presupposition that God is good. Where do we get that idea? Where is the idea that God, where does that come from? Because if you look at the world religions, you're not going to find it there. God is just, God is wrathful, or God is distant, but God is not loving. There's not a single world religion out there that puts forth that idea. And, and, and not only the world religions, but even smaller pagan religions do not put forth the idea that there's a loving God. In the, in the first century, gods were these pharaohs or they were the Caesars. But these people were not loving gods. They were dictators. There were people that you avoided or you knew would manip manipulate power. Jesus rides on a donkey in a time when life is unjust and suffering is a reality. The love of God was not something that every world religion owned at the time. Jesus' world that he walks into is described this way. It was violent and those with the biggest weapons ruled. At the time, being um, ruled by Ro the Roman Empire, that was absolutely the case. The wealthy and the powerful manipulated whether they were religious or not. Thirdly, the women were devalued, and the children were insignificant. Jesus rides on a donkey into this world. He's proclaimed as the one who could save them in this setting. And this Jesus redefines what we understand love and a loving God to be. Now, clearly, you're going to see this in the Old Testament. But Jesus said, if you want to see, if you want to know the Heavenly Father, get to know me. If you want to know how, who the Heavenly Father is, if you want to see him, look at me. Jesus gives us the, not only the impression or the image of who God is, we get to see God at work 
in his ministry. And Jesus engages children. He steps in and he actually elevates their worth in everyone's mind. He elevates the value of women counterculturally to put them in key positions of leadership within his movement. He steps in and he walks away from his divine wealth and he actually uses his power not to inflict violence or subjugation. He actually uses his power to resist violence and subjugation and allows himself to be arrested and fraudulently tried ultimately taking on violence himself by allowing the violent empire of Rome to turn its most heinous weapon of violence and torture against him so that you and I would not be, we would not be the victim of the violence and the distance from God that we deserve. He took it. Jesus did that. And so when we all of a sudden look at Jesus changing everything, we recognize that he is the redefinition of love and justice. He steps into our suffering. He's not going to bubble wrap our world, uh, bubble wrap our lives so we never experience it. We will walk through it with the God who came to earth and suffered and died for us. We're walking through that with him. And all of a sudden, we find that our suffering, even our suffering, is what brings us closer to God. The idea that I can't believe in a good God who causes suffering is a very Western, very white, very American thing to believe. But if you go around this world, you will see cultures that have been absolutely encountering and experiencing suffering, not distancing themselves from Christ, but being attracted to him all the more. Why? Because he changed everything. All of a sudden, God, the very God that I'm following is love, even in this moment, even in this darkness. But outside of Jesus and the reality of him being at the beginning as the one who gives us the ability to ask questions, as the ability to have logic, we have no reason for our suffering. And not only that, according to Dr. Stephen Hawking, everything that's bad in our world is going to continue to get worse. Dr. Stephen Hawking, who's br- he's the brilliant astrophysicist who has uh, ALS, he's confined to a wheelchair. He made a stunning statement when he was giving a speech at Cambridge, and this is what he said. He said that, yes, we have been designed, but since we do not know what the design is, we may as well not be. My only fear for mankind is this. Okay, now stop. This is the most brilliant person in the world, and he's still getting afraid, okay? So I just tell you that that Stephen Hawking is human. The thing that keeps him up at night, this man who's confined to a wheelchair but is brilliant beyond brilliant, he, he could, all of our minds combined, I don't think they're nearly as brilliant as Dr. Stephen Hawking. The thing that keeps that guy up at night, he says this, my only fear for mankind is this, the terror that stalks my mind is that we have arrived on the scene because of evolution. We are here because of naturalistic selection and natural selection assumes natural rejection which means we have arrived here because of our aggression. Let me read that again because there's a lot there. We are here because of naturalistic selection and natural selection assumes natural rejection, which means we have arrived here because of our aggression. If you are here today, it's because your tribe fought harder, was more brutal than the weaker tribes. We push down the weak, we raise up the strong, and we further our tribe, our race, our people. And that freaks him out. Dr. Hawking said after this, and you can look it up, look up uh, the quote. He says that the only way, the only plausible way that we can actually avoid our world from turning in on itself and us absolutely destroying one another is for us to habitat, uh, to plant ourselves as humans on different planets. To go out into, the, into space and find different planets that are, that are habitable and live there. 
because you can't trust humans to continue to populate the earth and not absolutely tear each other apart. Now, if you can think about this from the lens of a guy who's confined to a wheelchair, to recognize that if the survival of the fittest is accurate and natural selection is true, that will keep him up at night. And the only thing that could save us is if we take humanity and try to separate the kids so they don't beat each other up. But here's the thing. Dr. Hawking's is kept up at night because he knows that his belief system does not lead to a livable existence. But we have good news for Dr. Hawking. Like if, if Dr. Stephen Hawking was right here, we'd be able to share with him the good news. We'd be able to say to him, listen, we actually have a hope that tells us that this is not inevitable. And that hope is found in the fact that we have put our trust in him. This is why we see this in Colossians, or I'm sorry, um, uh, Dr. Stephen Hawking, the reason that he, I totally jumped ahead, the reason Hawking um, believes all this to be true is because the fact that the classic Darwinian, and, and he would reiterate this to you, classic Darwinian thought says that non-life produces life, randomness produces fine-tuning, chaos produces organized information, unconsciousness creates consciousness, and non-reason produces reason. Now, as we're, you know, the evidence that we're looking in physics, biology, astronomy, chemistry, cosmology, etc., all of them convey that we have an incredibly fine-tuned universe for life on this planet, that we happen to be in an incredibly fine-tuned solar system for life to be on this planet, and that the planet itself, if one degree one way or the other happened, we would have a holocaust because it is incredibly, incredibly fine-tuned that we actually have life here. Now, you process that through one of two ways. The first is the way Dr. Hawking's would by saying, this is true. This all came from nothing and is leading nowhere. There is no value in life. There is no value in love outside of the value that we ascribe to it. It's not real. The love that you have for someone in your life is a great thing for you to have, but it's just, an, it's a mirage. There's nothing intrinsically valuable about your children. There's nothing intrinsically valuable about, about love or life or purpose or, or humanity. We're here by accident and we're accidentally going nowhere. That's one way to look at it. The other way to look at it is, no, this is actually not true. And this is not true, not only because of what we see in scripture, but this is not true because of what we see and can experiment with scientifically on earth. When we look at everything that we can look at scientifically, we know that only life produces life. We have no examples for non-life producing life, uh, non-life producing life. Randomness does not produce fine-tuning. Intelligence produces fine-tuning. Chaos does not produce anywhere that we can test and, and explore and re-laboratory re experiment out. Chaos does not produce organized information. A mind produces organized information. Unconsciousness never creates consciousness. Only consciousness does. And non-reason never produces reason. Only rationality produces reason. And so the second way to look at it is actually when we study the science of our world, the format and the understanding that makes the most sense is that this was started by a genius. Everything that we look at would explain that, it would help us understand that. And when we see that, all of a sudden, we have the opportunity to know that we know him. And not only do we have the ability to know that, but we also have the opportunity to understand why humanity works, and the only way that humanity works. And it's through that same God that we talked about before, the one who is the God of love. Again, as we look at Colossians, which now we finally are, it says this, the Son is the image of the invisible God, 
the firstborn over all creation. Where do we all come from? God. Jesus was there. He was the creator. For in him, all things were created. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him, all things hold together. Jesus is the creator and created everything for him, including us. And this is good news for Dr. Hawking. This is good news because not only do we have an understanding for that first cause that led to everything, we have a rationale for it. Not only do we have a universe that now makes sense, all the science that we're we're taking in actually has a framework that makes sense, but we also have a framework that makes humanity make sense. Humanity is not simply aggressors. It doesn't have to be because, because if this God is, if this Jesus is the image of God, that he's not just something that we're here to look at. He's someone that we follow. And his following had a specific point. And the point was love. In the book of 1 John, John says this, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. When we can't understand where love comes from, when we're trying to, is this just a figment of our imagination? Yes, it is. Unless it came from someone who is defined by that, who has that already intrinsically in the relationship of the triunity, the the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. And so when we're talking to Dr. Hawking, because I'm hoping that you're going to have the opportunity, when we're talking to Dr. Hawking, we can say, Stephen, listen, everything you say makes sense unless Jesus, if he is actually God and the start, then what he does in transforming us through the power of the cross and the gospel, the good news of what he's doing in our lives, all of a sudden, we have a new definition of why we love and how to love. This is it. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Without that, there is nothing you should do. There's nothing you ought to do. Caring for the weak or caring for someone who's against you or caring for someone who's a different ethnicity than you or nationality than you, you you should not do that. You ought not do that. There's no reason unless Jesus. Because God is love and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. You may have heard it said, I don't really, I'm not religious, but I believe in a God of love. Really, where did you get that idea? Because it's nowhere in world religions until you meet Jesus. Jesus is love, and he calls us into it. But what, on a th- what authority does Jesus have to call us to do anything? The authority on the fact, of the fact that he is king. Now, this is the thing that people were hoping for in that first century movement, that he would actually be a king that would be able to take on Rome. And honestly, in our own lives... When we think about Jesus as king, the idea of monarchies and kings is super archaic to us. We don't really understand it, know it, even think that it's a a good idea because we've seen kingdoms be a total joke or abusive or keeping like a a ruling class and a poor class. But that was the same case for back in Jesus' time too. Kingdoms were abusive. Jesus was saying, my kingdom is different. I'm a different king than any political leader that you're going to have above you. But I am king, and I am master, and I am Lord. And when, if, we, if Jesus actually is all those things, it would make sense that he would make the most impact globally throughout history. 
And we believe that he has, but we're not alone in believing that he has. Time Magazine talked about this. They said, who are, who's the biggest? The 100 most significant figures in history. Now, Time Magazine, if you're not aware, is not a Christian publication. But they looked throughout they had this scientific, I don't even know how they did a scientific data search, but they looked to find out who has made the greatest impact. And they went and they listed the hundred most impactful people throughout all of history. And at the top of the list is who? Jesus. Which makes sense because he's king. He, it makes sense because he is the one who has done the most, impacted the most, caused the most. And he is the one who actually is the most. The one who has talked about the most, who is in, still inspiring the most. Because he's true. And here's the thing. Everyone else on the list, no one else claimed to be God. Jesus is the only one, even the one of, one of, of world religions that claimed to be God. Muhammad never claimed to be God. If Muhammad claimed to be Allah, that would be blasphemous and he would have died. But he didn't. He never claimed that. There are only two world religions that have the, the leader where the followers thought that this person might be God were Buddhism and Christianity. Buddha's followers thought he could be God. Jesus' followers thought he could be God. And, and the thing that, that's interesting is Buddha's response to that uh, claim and Jesus's. Buddha turns to his followers and says, no, I am not God. Jesus, on the other hand, affirms it. He affirms it. He steps in and he is the one who proclaims himself to be king when we look at everything that science presents, when we look at it all, we're looking at a reality, okay? A reality that says, this has to make sense. Like all the things we look at scientifically, and in Jesus, we have that. When we're looking at the scope of sociology and humanity and anthropology, we have to understand, is there a way for humanity to live and, and coexist? And there is, only in Jesus, who is love, who is our king. I want to show you, uh, just to celebrate Palm Sunday, I want to show you a, a video that kind of encapsulates it biblically from the scope of the whole Bible. So take a look at this. No other king could vanquish the war horse or silence the warrior's rage while riding the lowly back of a donkey. No other king could break the dominion of darkness, the tyranny of evil, with a reign of grace and a kingdom of peace. No other king could give his life for the redemption of rebels, his wealth to welcome the outcast. Jesus is that king, the king of glory, son of the living God. Not just another king, not just another prophet, not just another teacher. He was the one the world had been waiting for. The one to deliver us from captivity, the son of David and Abraham's chosen seed. He is the goal of the Mosaic law, Yahweh in the flesh. He is the one to establish God's reign and rule, to heal the sick, give sight to the blind, freedom to the prisoners, and proclaim good news to the poor. This Jesus was the creator come to earth and the beginning of a new creation. He embodied the covenant, fulfilled the commandments, and reversed the curse. This Jesus is the Christ that God spoke of to the serpent, the one prefigured to Noah in the flood, the one promised to Abraham, the one guaranteed to Moses before he died, the one promised
the question, is he king? What we say at Palm Sunday and Easter is yes. We affirm that and we proclaim with our lives that he is the king. He is the king over our suffering. He is the king over our doubts and our difficulties right now. He's the king over the fact that 2017 could have gone completely sideways and you have no idea and your, your world is spinning right now and he is the king over that. He's the king over the things that are bringing you joy and pleasure in this life and he is the king, this Jesus. He is the king over our sin and our rebellion and our brokenness and the things that we are ashamed of that we never want to bring up to anyone. He is the king over the dysfunction in our family. He, he is the king. And we proclaim that as Christians. We proclaim that at Easter because of the resurrection. He has proven it. Amen? And when that is our reality, when we see that and taste that, then that changes everything. Because when we're walking through the world, when we are not our own king, but he is, this one who is from the beginning, this one who is all the way through, all of a sudden we have not only a rationale for why we see everything in the world existing, but we know why we exist. We exist for him, for his glory for the life he's called us into. You're going to watch two baptisms today and hear nine testimonies. These are people, just people from Anuka Bible Church. And you're going to have an opportunity to share in their story. If you're someone who is a follower of Jesus, man, when you see these people get baptized, celebrate. When they come out of the water, let the first words that, hear, that enter into their ears after the water is draining out be your celebration because you're celebrating this pronouncement in that person's life. If you are someone who's on the fence and you've been wondering if you should cross that line and put your trust in what Jesus has accomplished for you that you could not accomplish for yourself on the cross and in his resurrection, make today a pronouncement that he is your king. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we lift up to you our praise. God, we we lift up to you our problems. We lift up to you our current context. And Lord, it it sometimes gets so um, confusing, God, as we're walking through life to wonder uh, which way is up. Lord, I think about those people who are celebrating you on Palm Sunday 2,000 years ago only to walk away from you when things got sideways, when things got problematic, when proclaiming that you are still king was something that pushed them uh, to the margin. Lord, I pray that you give us the boldness that comes from truth not emotion, boldness that comes from the reality of who you are and who you always have been and what you've accomplished for us. Let that lead to our passion. Let that lead to our our direction. And we'll give you thanks for it. It's in Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. amen.